Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. When NPR's Robert Siegel suggested that the harpsichord is viewed as old and not enormously popular, Iranian-American harpsichordist Mahan Esfahani responded this way, I think these things would matter only to Americans. As long as there's a place for sundials, gardening, and beautiful things, there's a place for the harpsichord. I completely reject the idea that harpsichord is old. I reject the idea that something old is therefore not good or not popular. Lots of things are old. Lots of traditions are old. I like it because it's beautiful. Since making his London debut in 2009, Espahani has worked tirelessly to establish the harpsichord in the mainstream of concert instruments in classical and contemporary repertoire. Espahani was on the USU campus recently to perform as a part of the Wasserman Festival Concert Series presented through the USU Kane College of the Arts Visiting Artists and Scholars Series, and we sat down for conversation. We're going to hear that conversation today. We'll talk about Mahan Esfahani's latest CD. We'll hear music of uh, two members of the Bach family, Scarlatti, Goretzky, and Steve Reich. And we'll talk about hip-hop. Here's my conversation with harpsichordist Mahan Esfahani. So a little bit of your background to start with. Born in Tehran? Yes, yes. Uh, I suppose I, you'd say I'm Iranian-American, mm-hmm. you know, hyphenated, hyphenated American. And uh, I grew up in Washington, D.C., just outside of Washington, D.C., and uh, I still have no idea how I got here. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea how I got what, here as what, a musician. What age were you? you uh, I was a child. I was you okay. know, four or five. And mm-hmm. uh, I think, like all newcomers in the United States, my parents had the foggiest notion that I'd become a musician or go into the arts because, of course, uh, you know, most new Americans want their children to be doctors or mm-hmm. engineers or that sort of thing. And um, goodness knows I tried, but, um, you know, I mean, long story short, I I feel lucky that I get to do my hobby as my job. Mm. People say to me, what's your hobby? And the truth is uh, playing the harpsichord is actually kind of is is my hobby. I mean, Mm -hmm. when I'm not practicing for concerts, which is which is rare, I like to just sit down and play, Um, you know, so I, I sort of struck it. (laughs) <laughs> struck gold really yeah. here with with that sort of lifestyle and uh so uh, you know I, the fact that i got here is itself sort of uh makes me chuckle a little bit so that that is a wonderful thing you can do your hobby for for a living um yeah, so you you tried out medical school i guess and you, you well, I didn't try out medical school i started as a pre med uh, at at stanford and uh, i just sort of walked out of a lecture one day and i just thought well i can't do this mm. Um, and I, I studied a variety of other things, uh, history and pre-law and Russian literature and all sorts of things. And, uh, you know, none of it really panned out uh, because what I really wanted to do was to read musicology. Now, of course, you might say, well, um, uh, if you read musicology, then you become a musicologist, which is to sit in a library, uh, which I love doing. I mean, I like libraries. You know, that's my sort of happy place. But uh, I, I just had this burning urge to be a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people still say to me, well, how did it happen? And my answer is, uh, I don't know. I have mm-hmm. no clue how this happened. Mm. Uh, you know, one thing just led to another, and the, uh, you know, the child of this career was born, if you <laughs> like. So. so a musician, we can understand that. That's you know, the call of music. What about harpsichord? What what speaks to you about the harpsichord? When did you know you wanted to well, you said some, something very apt here, which is the call of music. It is, it is a calling. It is indeed a calling, like, uh, like some people feel the clergy is a calling. 
um, or 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 the medical profession is a, is a, is a calling. I mean, many things are a calling. Um, uh, I don't know if maybe um, I don't know if being sort of a hedge fund investor is a calling, but you know, so you know, different jobs are different, obviously. But um, in terms of that calling, you know, I heard the harpsichord when I was very young. I must have been eight or nine on a cassette tape, and I went to the library and sort of got you know sort of recordings of the harpsichord, and I had an obsession. My father played the piano, and uh, that sort of annoyed him. So I thought, <laughs> well, okay, fine, I'll sort of put on things on the radio on the stereo that annoy him. And uh, and I just knew immediately this is what I wanted to do with my life. It, it, you know, and you say, oh, so you know you wanted to be a musician. No. No, this is very uh, key here. I didn't know I wanted to be a musician. I knew this is what I wanted to do with my life. Hmm. I knew that the harpsichord was what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, my parents found some sort of scrapbooks and things from when I was a child. And we had this little questionnaire that was given to us in maybe fourth or fifth grade. And it said, uh, what's your wish? And everybody said, oh, I want a million other wishes or I want a uh, sort of, uh, you know, Super Nintendo or that sort of thing. And mine was I want a harpsichord. You know, it, it, it didn't even occur to me that it could be a profession. And every day that I see a harpsichord, it's like seeing it for the first time. Mm. You know, it's that sense of wonderment. And nothing or uh, this is prosaic to say, but n- not anything or or no one has ever kept my attention like that, the way that no. the harpsichord So harpsichord in specific came before music in general for you? Goodness. Uh, yes, in a sense. I mean, music was always in the house. Um, I don't remember a time when we didn't listen, sit down as a family and listen to music. And uh, that was just, you know, it was apparent early on that I wasn't the sort of child who played catch. So um, my father thought, well, okay, I mean, the kid can't, ca- yeah, he can't catch a ball. I still cannot catch a ball, <laughs> um, which is very entertaining to my friends. But uh, but music was our sort of activity as a family, uh, playing it or listening to it or going to concerts. And um, so, you know, again, it comes from a sort of family hobby. Hmm. Now, uh, I've heard in other interviews where you, t- where you talk about this, uh, there are there is a bit of a stereotype, I think. You know, when you when some people, or maybe a lot of people, think harpsichord, they think okay, period instrument. Mm-hmm. They think old. Mm-hmm. Uh, piano is the new instrument. You know, mm-hmm. um, um, your passion about harpsichord. What do you, are, are, is part of your? Is it a mission for you to push back against this, or what yeah. do you? Well, first of all, you know, I mean, I used to chafe at these sort of stereotypes. Uh, I happen to see them as an opportunity. You know, there's always there are always going to be stereotypes out there about all sorts of things. I mean, uh, there are people out there who think that uh, you know the president was transplanted by aliens. Um, there are people out there who think that uh, you, you know Hitler ended up in Antarctica. I mean, there's always going to be people who, who think sort of <laughs> wacky things. And the weight of evidence is not going to really do much for them. That being said, though, um, you know, this idea that the piano is the new thing. First, uh, let me first of all say that I love the piano. Uh, I would gladly come back to uh, to Utah State to hear the recital that Richard Good is doing here in a few months. I really want to hear that. I love Richard Good. I heard him in, in London last year, and he's marvelous. But uh, with the piano, well, actually, the piano as we know it um, has been going – well, it's been undergoing – 
virtually no change in the last 120, 130 years, um, even more possibly. Um, whereas the harpsichord and associated keyboard instruments um, they underwent change every 10 years. I mean, uh, not even looking at the harpsichord, but looking at, say, the early piano in the life of, say, Schubert, um, you cannot recognize the piano every five years in the life of Schubert. So with the harpsichord, I mean, there are issues even more so with that. So it's an instrument that co constantly underwent change. And, I, and, and I, something I always want to tell people is the harpsichord didn't die. It just kind of went to sleep. Um, and... Obviously, now we're recreating harpsichords as they were built in the 17th and 18th centuries because the old builders knew what they were doing. That being said, uh, I think it's possible to take off where the builders stopped. Think that it just sort of stopped. We left this you know, sort of beautiful house the way it is. We left all the plates on the table. We left all the you know, dishes in the sink. And then we come back to take over the house, and, and business just continues as usual. Now, this is a sort of problematic idea. Um, people in, in so-called early music, which is, you know, sort of historical performance practice, the idea of recreating performances of the past and performance practices of the past, which is a, which is a valid way of looking at the world. I don't, uh, I don't personally share that view, but uh, many do. Um, they have a problem with that. They say, they say that we should um, – some of them say that we should trust the past first. And then some of them say that, n no, actually, the past is better than the present. My personal view is um, I was reading something about um, the conductor Furtwängler the other day, who's a really fascinating guy. And Furtwängler said that every time you perform, I'm going to totally misquote this, and, well, that's life. But he said every time you perform the work, you must reconstruct it anew. You have to reconstruct the work anew. Um, and he talked about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, where certain motives represent um, sort of timeless events in human history or timeless ideas or timeless concepts. And each generation is going to redefine um, that music immensely. We've seen that, for example, in the past week with the tragedy in Paris. Um, the Marseillaise, the National Anthem of France, or La Valse Triste, or some French music I was playing the other evening, they acquire a new poignancy because of uh, what we associate now with French music in the wake of that attack. Now, are you going to tell me that that's inauthentic and that somehow as a human being, uh, you know, my thoughts are invalid, that they're void because I respond to the present? Uh, that's what people in early music do. And I think that's wrong. Uh, I, think, I think that's morally wrong, actually. Um, music lives when we relate it to our own lives and we relate it to events uh, around us, as Bach and Handel and others did. Um, music dies when we, uh, you know, when we sort of turn off the office light at 5 p.m. and then we just go home. That's not, that's not living music. Um, that's an object. And uh, if there's one modern innovation that I am against, um, I'm basically quite <laughs> modern, I think, uh, even though I can't drive or catch a ball. But um, if there's one modern innovation that I am against, it's that we've made art into an object. Art is not an object. It certainly was not an object before uh, the French Revolution, before the Second World War, rather. Uh, and um, many times art was functional. So unless we infuse it with thoughts of our own time, most of it will be insipid because uh, the social institutions that gave rise to a great deal of this music don't exist anymore. So if you play, for example, a quartet by Telemann uh, from Tafelmusik, which was meant to be accompanying dinner, if you play it in a concert hall and we don't so do something new with it, it will sound like background music, and that's stupid. And why would you waste your time listening to background music? So something new needs to be done. 
Um, what that is, I will leave that um, you know an open discussion. I can't dictate that. I think one of the impulses behind what you're what you're speaking against here is reverence. We want to reverence the old music. You know, it's and you've been you've been speaking out against this idea of classical music as a museum piece. Uh, where does the impulse come from, and what what should the impulse be? What should we be experiencing? Well, I mean, I do revere the music. I revere music is very much my religion. But there's two ways to you see. We say the word religious, right? This is a word we forget. There's another word which is religios. There's a very big difference between religious and religios. A religious person is something, someone who, um, shall we say, performs their faith according to um, the letter of that faith and the spirit of that faith. Um, a religious person sort of makes the outward showings of it um, and sort of fetishizes the trappings of that faith, but, you know, may, may be a jerk. You know, it, I mean, they, they, they're necessarily not. You can be, you can be religious and religious at the same time, and that's fine and that's lovely. But um, I think that we're being religious about the trappings of music. Uh, it's kind of like food. Um, so, uh, yesterday I, I came from, uh, the airport, I was being driven here and, um, something that we don't get in, in Europe is Arby's. Uh, so we were passing by Arby's on the highway and I thought, you know, before I leave Utah, I'm going to go to Arby's. Uh, I said this to my mother yesterday on the phone and she said, why would you go to Arby's? You have good taste in things. And I said, well, I do, I do like good food and I, I'm, I'm an amateur chef as it happens. Uh, but once you know good things, <laughs> you can go to Arby's. You know, it's a, you're not going to die. No one's going to judge you if you go to Arby's because you know good things. Um, much in the same way, we, um, I object very much to when people attach to classical music sort of class um, connotations that are not there. And I say, no, guys, come on. Take a look at this. Take a look at it or, or take a listen to it for what it really is, and you'll discover that it, it actually isn't what you think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, if I say that, those of us, you know, denizens in classical music, we should be open to other musics in the same way. Um, look, there's some music that I just kind of don't like. Uh, that being said, uh, I see why it exists. I see the function of that music. Um, there are musical cultures other than my own. Um, when I play new music, I say this because I play a great deal of modern music as well. I say to audiences, you don't have to like it, but you have to acknowledge that music is changing. Music is, is going somewhere. Um, music that wasn't part of our vocabulary, for example, um, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. I mean, the first performance was not only a disaster, but there was also a riot and the playing was was dreadful. Um, but now a college orchestra can put together Rite of Spring. That means that it's entered our vocabulary, our, our artistic vocabulary. Things take time. Sometimes they take 100 years. Sometimes they take 200 years. Um, you know, when you go and hear a piece of new music and then everyone's griping about the composer in the lobby afterwards, well, like, give it a, give it a few months at least, you know, give it a few mm-hmm. years. Bach needed 200 years mm-hmm. for, for people to get him, and I think we still don't get him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people just need to kind of chillax about mm-hmm. this this thing a little bit. I really recommend to people who listen to classical music to go see a film, which I know there's going to be people, people who just turn off the dial the second I say this, but it's called Straight Outta Compton, and it's about Dr. Dre, which is a, it's it's thoroughly interesting. I I'm personally not was not into hip hop until I saw this film.
You know, they're creating a completely new genre of music, and it's coming out of the social situations in South Central Los Angeles and the black community and, and, and how the music defines who they are and how it expresses who they are. And I, I really, I'm really glad I went to see this film because I felt like people say to me, why do you play the harpsichord? The harpsichord ex- expresses exactly who I am as a person. It comes, it's so intertwined with my life as a person. And I think this movie, even if you hate this genre of music, go see it because it, it talks about how does... Um, it's a cliched term, but how does music weave into our lives? And I think it's a really beautiful film. And so, you, you know, you, you go around, you hear hip-hop just about everywhere. I sure. wonder, you know, classical music, we, we assign that to the concert hall. Do, uh, can classical yeah. music do the same thing that you're talking about with well, the, the hip-hop Well, they have different tone? functions. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, a lot of hip-hop that we hear uh, sort of piped into us is quite bad. Uh, a great deal of hip-hop uh, is, is actually quite good. Um, you know, a great deal of it is art. I mean, we, we hear insipid classical music piped at us in the supermarket too, but, you know, nobody, you know, we hear Eine Kleinenacht music piped at us, but then nobody goes and says, you know, Mozart is evil or Mozart is representative of how our society is, you know, d- degraded or something. No, nobody says that. You know, we have to, we have to really, I think, come to a place in classical music where we say, if this is, if we feel like this is the truth, the truth can withstand a lot of what we do, to, a lot of what we do around it, because it's it's still something that we believe in. If it's something that we're convinced by, open your ears, listen to other, you know, listen to other stuff. You don't have to like it, but I'm saying that um, my 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 um, statements are not aimed actually at popular music. What I'm saying is aimed more at uh, having an openness to new music or having an openness to new ways of playing old music. Um, Now, I play the harpsichord, and, uh, you know, I have done a significant amount of research into the way that uh, harpsichord would have been played in the period, how Bach thought of the harpsichord. Do I wear that learning on my sleeve? No, because that's how I, because it comes out in my playing. You know, I don't have to sort of wear an academic sort of thing on my sleeve and remind people every five minutes that I have the objective truth because that doesn't exist. And the second that I say that I'm representing sort of old performance practices as authenticity, once you say something's authentic, you're saying something's not authentic, right? Mm-hmm. You're saying that your brand of cheese is the authentic one and the other ones aren't. Uh, that's a lie in music um, because we don't know how the composer did things. We can, we can be reasonably informed. But uh, but in any case, I think that the whole authenticity debate is uh, you know pretty much winding down. Really, mm-hmm. uh, you said that uh, the harpsichord, uh, you you play on the harpsichord, um, you're able to represent your your real self, I guess. I guess I'm, so. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you'd expand on that. How how so? What is it about the harpsichord? If I could expand on it in words, I guess I wouldn't play the harpsichord. Mm-hmm. Really, it's just who I am. I I can't say it. I think you have to be a very precise, slightly neurotic player, but then you can really sort of sit in the sound. I mean, it's a very sensual instrument. People are going to be surprised I use that adjective, but it is a very sexy instrument. I mean, it's a very personal, very subtle instrument. Um, Every little articulation just for me, represents so much. And and I think, you know, you have to put yourself on the line as a performer to people. You have to give yourself. You know, it's one thing to avoid risks. Uh, I mean, the ideal is, of course, that you take the risks and you, and you do it right. You get it right, uh, which, of course, I try to do. But uh, you have to give yourself to people. You know, people don't have to feel like a concert is a 
is a penance, mm. you know, but, but at the same time, going to a concert, it doesn't mean you need to be excited all the time. Sometimes you need to be transported to a very quiet, private place. Mm. Um, you know, I can't really say that in words. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. We're hearing conversation that I recorded uh, recently with harpsichordist Mahanas Mahani. His latest CD is Time Present and Time Past. Coming up in the second half of this conversation, we'll be hearing some music of Goretzky. We'll hear uh, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach and uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, and we'll hear some music of uh, Steve Reich. Um, that is coming up. We hope you'll stay with us for more of uh, Mahan Esfahani. <laughs> Did you know that a child doesn't need to specialize early in a sport to become an elite player? Parents and coaches may believe their child needs to pick one sport and stick with it from the beginning, but early sports specialization doesn't necessarily make a child a star player later on. So much about the child's adult body size hasn't been determined yet, and the child's adult height and body shape will influence what sport she's best suited for. When young athletes are starting out, it is healthy for them to experiment with different sports. When they do, they are able to get the exercise, social interaction, and fun that attracted them to sports in the first place. This segment of Did You Know That? has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm talking this hour with harpsichordist Mahan Esfahani. Uh, his latest CD is Time Present and Time Past. We're hearing a bit of Scarlatti there. Coming up in the, the second half of the conversation, we'll be hearing some music of Goretzky. We'll hear from two of the Bachs, uh, Carl Philip Emanuel and uh, Johann Sebastian. We'll also hear music of Steve Reich. Uh, since making his London debut in 2009, Mahan Esfahani has worked tirelessly to establish the harpsichord in the mainstream of concert instruments and classical and contemporary repertoire. And Esfahani was on the USU campus recently to perform as part of the Wasserman Festival concert series presented through the USU Kane College of the Arts Visiting Artists and Scholars series. Here is the second half of my conversation with harpsichordist Mahan Esfahani. Just about everybody has a piano or seen a piano or maybe has a piano in their house or, you know, hear it in church or whatever. Um, not as many people have, you know, been up close with the harpsichord. What if you describe the the instrument? I, you know, I, I know that it looks kind of like a piano. Sure. Uh, well, yeah, obviously less people have seen a, harps, uh, a harpsichord. It's less, of a, it's less of a common instrument, obviously. It's less of a domestic instrument as well. Um, well... I mean, the harpsichord, of course, looks in every respect like a, a piano. I mean, some of them are painted, and that's kind of irrelevant. But uh, I think that the thing to take away from the harpsichord is there's a clarity of sound. There's a great clarity of sound. Now, of course, you can combine different sounds and stops and registers as an organ. But this clarity of sound means that it expresses ideas. Um, it expresses counterpoint or polyphony, which is to say the confluence of different lines and ideas very well. Um, and I, for me, music has to be counterpoint. M music is the meeting of ideas. It's the dialectic of ideas. And so um, in that sense, could you say that harpsichord is intellectual? Uh, you know, you could say that. But I mean, because the harpsichord plucks the string, 
the um, manner in which you make expression is to manipulate the spaces between those plucks and the manner in which you let the uh, the jacks come up and down or keep the strings vibrating. That's the whole art. I mean, that's what I've been doing the last 10 years, and I think I'm going to spend the next 60 years still trying to master that if I ever get it. Um, but that is harpsichord playing, is mm. mastering those spaces. And so it's a matter of timing. Now, some people say, oh, well, the harpsichord doesn't have um, dynamic possibilities. Well, that's... Well, I mean, that's people say lots of asinine things. Oh, can I say that on public radio? I guess not. Uh, but people say lots of silly things. Um, you know, but when we speak, for example, um, we tend to speak at one volume. I mean, a person who sort of changes volume constantly is like, I don't know, like sort of William Shatner. That's a sort of funny way of speaking. But um, if we speak at one volume, we do delineate our thoughts and ideas according to how we punctuate and articulate our speech. Uh, and a very master speaker is a master of timing and articulation. That's the same thing with a harpsichord. Uh, so, you know, it's not that it's less expressive. It's that it's differently expressive. And, um, you know, again, we should suspend our disbelief. Hmm. I'd like to talk about your album. Um, time Present and Time Past. Uh, this is from Deutsche Grammophon. Uh, the title... Yes. What are you expressing there? Time present, time past. <laughs> well, with t- time present and time past, um, you know, I had done some albums previous to this with Hyperion, uh, which is a wonderful label. I'd done the Complete Ramo and some Emmanuel Bach and things with them, and then I, I did one for the Wigmore Hall's uh, live label of uh, some modern music and Bach and things. And um, with this album with Deutsche Grammophone, I had a chance to create a sort of concept album, if you like. At the time that I was designing this program, I wanted modern things and I wanted Baroque music. And I was looking at the confluence of Baroque music and minimalism. And there was a lot of sort of things going on in my brain and in my life. Um, I had had the privilege that earlier that year, uh, I had turned uh, 30 earlier that year, and um, the director at uh, Aldborough Music. Um, so Aldborough is where Benjamin Britten was living, and there's a huge music center there, and people go and do music residencies, and it's like an artist colony, and it's on the sea. It's on the North Sea. And um, the director at Aldborough and Britten Pierce Foundation said, what do you want to do for your 30th birthday? I mean, is there something that you haven't done yet that you want to do? I said, I actually just want to come to Aldborough and live, the, live here for two months and finish learning the well-tempered clavier of Bach, um, which I've been working on since I was... 10 or 11. And I thought, okay, good 19 years on this project. Let's finish it. Um, That's the first book that is. And so, you know, I went to Albra and basically practiced all day and then, you know, sort of walked on the beach and smoked my pipe. And that was my life. And there was a bookstore on the beach. Oh, and I didn't have like my phone or computer, which was uh, very aggravating for my agent. And uh, I just went to the bookstore and bought whatever. And so one day, the lady at the bookstore handed me the four quartets of T.S. Eliot. Um, now, the, the four quartets meaning that this, it's four poems, not four, um, not, not musical quartets. And I had never really read T.S. Eliot, but a lot of um, uh, two of my big harpsichord mentors um, really loved T.S. Eliot's poetry. So I thought, okay, well, I'll give this a chance. And I don't know, I just got so much into T.S. Eliot. And in, in his uh, one of his poems in Burnt Norton, he writes about um, time present and time past and uh, about these sort of um, intangible and ineffable qualities of time. And I thought, that's it. That's the title. I called my producer and I said, that's the title of the 
of the album. Mm. Um, the funny thing is I still haven't read the fourth poem. <laughs> it's on my bookshelf, but, well, here we are. Yeah. I shouldn't Ho- admit that. Hopefully there's some, nothing in that last poem that totally invalidates the, the idea. I doubt, I doubt there is. But, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Um, so there's a, there's a broad range. Here. You, you've, you've got J.S. Bach up to Steve Reich. I wonder if we could start, uh, you know, at the the, mo- the most modern Steve Reich. This, uh, tell me about this piece. Well, I had asked Steve Reich if he would write me a piece. Uh, he said, "I don't have time, but I think someone should do piano phase on harpsichord." That was that was literally what happened. But um, Steve Reich is a is a genius, I think, and um, he's redefined musical language for our time. And I had heard piano phase a couple of times, you know, in public concerts, and it's for two pianists. And I thought, oh. Hot dog, you know, it'd be really interesting to make a transcription for one harpsichord versus pre-recorded tape. Fun and easy idea, took a while to do. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so Steve Reich, um, I was fascinated by, again, the harpsichord has so many colors and it's such a sensual sound. And I, I, I noticed that, you know, as the, well, how do you say this, as the ideas are phasing, uh, you hear these different colors in the difference tones between the two tracks. And, uh, you know, I think that that shows the harpsichord off to good advantage. Mm. So for me, it was something to make the harpsichord sound good. And again, I, I hate to keep coming back to this, and it's probably aggravating for you. No. But, uh, but, but uh, you know, Steve Reich... First of all, in phasing with with you know playing with a tape of yourself, uh, playing it in another part, um, some people will be saying no, no, no. That, that harpsichord is just <laughs> doesn't fit with that. Sure, some people think that. Well, I mean, it happened. You know, it's like saying that a monkey can't drive a a, a, a cab. Well, I mean, it, it's happened. You know, <laughs> we <laughs> go to Vegas. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are monkeys driving cabs, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, not that I'm uh, not that I am like that monkey driving a cab. I mean, this is a slightly uh, slightly less serious proposition to play a harpsichord, but um, y- you know, I mean, but it happened. So, so now what? Mm-hmm. You know, things st- stuff happens. I mean, the harpsichord is, doesn't have any limitations in my in my mind. I think if you will that it can happen. This comes from a, a s- short story by the uh, Russian author Mandelstam, and he talks about being in the gulag, and then his friends say, "But you're here now. How did you get out of the gulag?" and these two, he says these two guards were coming to him, and he said, easy. I just flew over them, and I flew over the wall, and I got out of the gulag. So if you believe that you can fly out of the gulag, you know, we have to fly out of the gulag of our minds um, with the harpsichord. And, you know, look, I'm not saying here that we need to make it some sort of, like, hipster craft thing where we reject the past. No, like, I love the past. You know, I live for, the, for this old music. But, but old isn't bad. You know, old doesn't mean dead. Uh, with time present and time past, I'm saying we should we need to reexamine our ideas of of is is the linear view of history really the most advantageous way of looking at history? Mm. Is that because Western culture is the only culture that looks at history like that? Is that good? Do we have something to learn from other cultures in that respect? That's what I think. Tell me about the Goretzky piece. Oh, I love this piece. It is a really hard piece. It doesn't sound like it because it's actually quite repetitive. Thank you. 
this is not a transcription. Goreski wrote a harpsichord. Goreski wrote a harpsichord concerto. concerto. Yeah. yeah, and it's really funny. It's a different kind of virtuosity because keeping that sense of repetition and pre- precision is 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 actually way more challenging than I thought it would be. But um, you see, in the Eastern Bloc, the harpsichord. Now, um, I studied harpsichord playing in Prague with her, uh, one of the great harpsichordists, and her name is Zuzana Ruzhkova, who's uh, she's still alive, and. Um, during the communist period, she had a lot of issues with the harpsichord because the communists said that the harpsichord was a feudal instrument that represented feudal values, so they wouldn't let her play it for a long time. And then people couldn't play the organ because that was a religious instrument that represented, you know, basically anti-socialist, anti-communist values. So as a result, I mean, when you tell people to not do something, they'll do it. So composers of the Eastern Bloc wrote a lot for the harpsichord. Um, in another album, I recorded the three uh, harpsichord works by, I like to say the complete harpsichord works, but it's only three pieces. The three harpsichord pieces by Ligeti. Um, and of course, there's Goreski, there's Schnitka, there's Sherepnin, there's uh, quite a bit of music out there from the Eastern Bloc and from communist countries, partly as a reaction, but partly also because they didn't have um, they didn't have a harpsichord tradition in the 18th century. You know, they didn't have like a Bach and a Couperin, right? So in a sense, it's a new instrument for them. And I find that refreshing. They don't sort of write sort of nostalgic, kitschy schlock for the harpsichord, right? They're not, you know, they don't sort of say prelude and fugue in the modern style. No, like they write something completely new. And I think, again, they're challenging the idea that it, the instrument has any limitations. Uh, tell me about Johann Sebastian Bach. Let me uh, let me quote well, from you. How you many say, radio shows do you want? Yeah. <laughs> I, I I kind of figured. You say Bach is living, breathing romantic. Yeah, he is. Uh, I mean, Bach is always living. Bach is. You know, Bach constructs music that reflects the way that he wants the he wishes the world to be. Uh, Bach lives in a a, a world that is uh, not neat and ordered. Um, that being said, of course, Bach's music is also not neat and ordered. Um, contrary to popular belief, he's not a sort of mathematical composer at all. But um, Bach is not only the only composer, I think he's the only human being in history whose heart and mind and intellect and emotions are completely, uh, they are completely integrated with what he is a unique person in human history in that respect. So, you know, Bach, I mean, where do you even start with Bach. I can say I've I've played Bach my whole life, and I don't know anything more about him. And that reminds me of um, Stravinsky said. There's this quote from Stravinsky where he says that my whole life I've not heard one note of music that I understand, but I know that I've experienced music. Um, and I think that w- realizing that about Bach should make us open to other kinds of music that we don't understand. Mm. Because I think we'll never understand music. I, I will never understand art. The point isn't for you to understand it. The point is for you to experience it. Those are two very different things. Um, so I think Bach taught me that, or Bach is teaching me Why Bach and not, you know, any other composer you could you could name? Because uh, he's better. 
<laughs> Basically, I mean, Bach is better than... I mean, God knows he's better than Handel. Ooh, gosh. I really don't care for Handel's music at all. Uh, Bach... I mean, there's that challenge in Bach. And of course, you know, as human beings, we... We like we like a challenge, right? We feel good after we've we've achieved something, and it, like it's like a souffle. I, you know, the first time I made a proper souffle, I was I was delighted with myself. Um, but in the case of Bach, there is that satisfaction of getting the challenge, but it's we also never get it. So it's like we always want more from Bach. He always makes us want more. Hmm. Schweitzer said that even a two-part invention by Bach teaches us. Um, the values that we want to see in other music, you know, it's it, and when when those values don't exist, we we say that that music is poorer as a result. What is it about Handel? It's don't just, like Handel. Just uh, I'm kidding. Actually, I do like Handel. Handel is not. I, mean, I put him on my iPod when I'm on the metro. You know, as sort of charming. But I mean, uh, Handel is different. No, look, I do like Handel. Uh, they have different aims. In, in life. Bach is sort of redeeming humanity. Handel, Handel wants to speak to people very directly. And actually, um, I should say Handel has that real gift as a composer that he, he can immediately go to the heart or the ears of even the most unsympathetic person. And Handel can speak immediately to a person. I mean, when you put Handel on the radio, if let's say people are working or cooking or there's caterers or something, the second you put on Handel, people will go quiet within five minutes. He has mm. this way of just saying, hey, listen to me. Um, Handel is wonderful. No, I, I say that as a sort of joke. Uh, you know, music is entertainment as well. Um, Bach doesn't always feel like that. In the concertos, of course, he does because he wrote them for a coffee house. So um, they are meant to be entertainment. But Handel is is forever attuned to what the public wants. And um, anyone who's tried to ever compose would know that that's a real gift and that, you know, that's a gift as great as Bach's, but it's just very different. Hmm. Tell me about, um, this is one of uh, G.S. Bach's sons, Carl Philipp Emanuel uh, Bach. Well, he, had, of course, had a, a large progeny. Um, CPE, probably the most successful of those um, Funny question. Yeah, CPE Bach is an interesting one. He's, uh, so his name is Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. By the way, he's named for his godfather and Bach's best friend, Georg Philipp Telemann. Uh, and uh, Philipp Emanuel is a, is, a, is a funny composer. The reason why I put him on there, well, I had actually started my recording career with um, Carl Philipp Emanuel's music. Funny enough, my first album only came out in January of 2014, so I haven't even been in this game for two years. But I recorded six of his sonatas. They're called the Württemberg Sonatas, which were written for the Duke of Württemberg in 1744. Emanuel Bach I liked because we're both young men. And there's that sort of imperfection and that impetuous sort of quality. I'm just really into the music of the Bach family, other than Bach himself. I mean, Bach had four sons that became composers. Um, arguably, the most successful may have been Johann Christian, who went to Milan, became sort of the king of Italian opera, and then went to London, where, well, everyone went to make money and write opera. And he became known as John Christian Bach and had a, a wildly successful career in Paris. And I, I mean, Johann Christian Bach, if you haven't heard his music, go listen to it. He's a really good composer. And the operas are just tremendous works. And uh, he's a big influence on Mozart. Um, Friedemann Bach, Wilhelm Friedemann Bach, that's W.F. Bach, 
he was the eldest son, and some say the most talented. Um, some, many people said he was a greater organist and harpsichordist than his father. Having played some of his works, I can attest that uh, he must have had an amazing technique. And uh, But he was uh, kind of what we might describe as a bit of a loser um, for reasons I really won't get into. But he had, he had issues, Friedemann Bach, and he left a pretty small corpus of music, couldn't really hold down a job, so he didn't do too well, but he may have been the great genius of the family. And then Emmanuel... Um, succeeded his godfather Telemann into the job at Hamburg. He was municipal music director. He was at the court of Frederick the Great in Berlin for many years. And for me, you know, Emmanuel Bach represents breaking out, uh, going into completely new directions. He felt stifled by his father's style and the dominance of his father as a composer. Not that his father was famous, but I mean, Bach was a pretty big personality, musically speaking. And Emmanuel Bach thought, well, I've got to break out of this and just create my own new style. In that sense, that reminds me of people saying that the harpsichord can't or can do certain things. I think, well, no, I just kind of want to go on and do my own thing. And so what speaks to me is that sort of angry young man. Hmm. Emmanuel was, a, was an angry young man. Hmm. I, lo- I love, I think he would have been the kind of guy that I would want to sort of sit down and have a beer with. Hmm. Referenced earlier in the program, response that music can have, and people turn to music in times of tragedy, like the attacks in in Paris. I wonder if you could expand on that, to it, especially the role of any music, but the role of classical music. People turn to it, or or a performer such as yourself. Well, respond, you know, to 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 these types of things in our world. I mean. It be it, it far be it for me to dictate how we use music, you know, or how we make how we make use of music. Excuse me. Yeah, people turn to it in, for solace or comfort or joy or for a certain function. Uh, I think we turn to classical music because uh, because it's a quality product. You know, I, I go around and I see there's cigar stores and there's stores that sell really nice fountain pens. These are luxury products. These are nice products. Uh, classical music is way nicer than these. Um, and yet it is accessible. You know, you have to have a lot of money to buy a really expensive box of cigars. Um, you don't have to have a lot of money to understand classical music necessarily. You just have to be open to it. Please trust me on this. You just have to be open to it. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't need to go and bother and educate yourself a little bit about it, you know, before, but that's okay. You listen to some, you found out more. It's like, it's like having a pipe. Okay. So I have a pipe. I'm very fascinated with pipes. I think they're very, they're, they're a very peaceful act to smoke a pipe. And when I got into it, then I started researching about pipes and going on the internet and, you know, sort of going on eBay and buying sort of antique pipes. And it was just, it's just sort of a fun thing. I'm not that into pipes, right? Like it's just sort of a hobby. If you're even slightly into classical music, you will bother to get to know about it because you ca- because you care enough to get to know about it. And th- that's the use I think we should make of classical music. Mm. I want to ask you personally. You're, I'm sure you listen to music, all types of music probably, and you perform music. I want to get a little more behind what that does for you. Because, you know, I don't perform I mean, I, I listen to all types of music. What, 
So I guess starting with what, what you get out of that as a performer, what? I guess it's just my way of dealing with life, with the good and bad things in life. There's a lot of bad in life. I mean, it's out of your control, but it happens. Uh, you know, as humans, we think that our thoughts are best expressed by language. Um, we've confused the words that we use with the actual objects or, or the feelings that they represent. Um, but there are other ways to do that. Um, music is one of those ways. What does music do for me? I mean, what does performing do for me? Uh, I mean, I like people. I like to connect to people. I like that feeling of not speaking to people for a couple of hours, but we connect on a much different level and we don't have to talk about it necessarily. Mm. Uh, that's a really nice feeling. I might not connect with those people in any other way. You know, if I saw them on the bus, I might we not might not chat. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of chatty anyway, so we might, but but we might not. And uh, so that you know that quality of connecting with people in a sincere way. Without, I'm not asking. You know, when I'm playing to people, I'm not asking you for anything. I'm not asking you to give me something. I mean, well, you bought a ticket, but that's your choice, obviously. But I mean, further than that, I'm not. I'm not asking for a handout. I'm not asking for a favor. I'm not. No, I'm just I'm giving you something and you're giving me something and that's it. And then you go home and you think about it and I think go home and I think about it. And and then we reconvene. We reconvene. You know, at the beginning of the concert, there's a quality of you're probably all wondering why I've called you here today. Mm -hmm. And and that's beautiful. That's really that's why I live for this. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't there's nothing else I want to do. Mm -hmm. What about as a uh, consumer of, of music? If you have your earbuds in, what are you likely to be listening uh, to? Well, let's look at my iPod. What have I got on my – what have I got? Oh, my phone's off actually. Um, well, I have – right now I'm listening to some Gluk. I'm listening to Gluk's Alceste and the recording by John Elliott Gardner. That's really good because I really like Gluk. Uh, and I have um, some – Bach on there. I'm listening to Elgar's Second Symphony and the new recording by Barenboim, which is amazing. Because I didn't really used to like Elgar's Second. I was always really into the First Symphony, which I also have on my phone with the Schulte recording. Um, I have uh, the Straight Out of Compton soundtrack because mm. I love the movie so much. I have a little bit of Whitney Houston. I've got um, the uh, long version of Last Christmas by Wham uh, because I played it for someone's Christmas party last year and it stayed on my phone and it's kind of embarrassing and I should really get rid of it because it's kind of a stupid piece. And um, oh, I'm actually really into American music. So I've been downloading a lot of um, these Alan Lomax field recordings, which oh, yes. are really interesting, mm -hmm. especially like the music that he went to the Mississippi Delta um, and like he recorded um, chain gangs and prison music. And so I listen to a lot of podcasts about uh, American music mm. um, because that's my other um, passion is, uh, is sort of roots music and American music. And um, I think that's really interesting stuff. Might we hear a recording in the future of uh, Mahanes Bahani on the harpsichord playing American roots music? <laughs> well, you know, render onto Caesar what is Caesar's and, uh, <laughs> you know, all that. But uh, – you know, I think it's because it's different from what I could ever do. So I find it, I find it fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't always have to understand what's going on, but I think we can sense integrity when it's there, and we can sense a lack of integrity when it's not there in music. Mm -hmm. uh, and to me, 
Um, to me, those field recordings in American folk music, there's you know, Appalachian music and stuff. They represent authenticity. And that's real authenticity, not saying that you know how Bach did something and, and then selling it and making money off of it. That's not authentic. But music that's really from the lives of those people, um, to me, is incredibly authentic. So, yeah, I love that stuff. Well, Mahan Espahani, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. You've been listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Mahan Espahani uh, was on the USU campus recently for a concert uh, as part of the Wasserman Festival Concert Series presented through the USU Kane College of the Arts Visiting Artists and Scholars Series. His latest CD is Time Present and Time Past. And you can check out his uh, website. It's mahanespahani.com. Hope you'll join me tomorrow for the program. A uh, book out uh, by Utah authors getting uh, great reviews. Uh, the author is David G. Pace. The book is Dream House on Golan Drive. The year is 1972. Young Riley Hartley's living in a typical Mormon family in Provo. And uh, he takes a journey. Um, he's guided by uh, one of the three Nephites from the Book of Mormon, and also the wandering Jew of post-biblical legend. David Pace, Dream House on Golan Drive, tomorrow. Hope you'll join me. Thanks for listening today.